Welcome back. I'm Justin Briley. This is Unbelievable, the show that brings you Christians and non-Christians, conversations that matter, and you can get weekly dialogues and debate via our podcast as well. And if you sign up to our newsletter, you won't miss a thing. Plus, you'll get a free ebook, some of my favorite conversations with people like Jordan Peterson, Richard Dawkins, and Tim Keller. There are links to the show and the newsletter in the description. Do like and subscribe if you enjoy this video. Well, on today's show, we're asking, is free will an illusion? And does it matter if it is? What clothes did you choose to wear this morning, I wonder? What did you eat for breakfast? And did you really have a choice in any of it? Many notable atheist thinkers, such as Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett, have claimed that human free will is an illusion. But if that's true, then where does it leave the concept of people being held responsible for the good and the bad they do in life? And perhaps more fundamentally, does the elimination of free will call into the question the very concept of reason itself? Well, to discuss these deep questions, I'm joined by an atheist and Christian guest on the show today. Dan Barker is co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and his book, Free Will Explained, argues that science and philosophy converge to create a beautiful illusion of free will, and we should embrace that illusion. Braxton Hunter is president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary in Indiana, I think it is, Braxton. He's an apologist and co-host of the Trinity Radio YouTube channel. He believes that the deterministic view of the world favoured by many atheists is a serious problem for ethics and for reason. But if libertarian free will exists, then it's good evidence for God. So I'm looking forward to today's philosophical discussion. I don't think either of you necessarily think of yourselves as philosophers necessarily, but let's get a brief introduction to both of you anyway. Um, Dan, welcome back to the show. It's been several years, I think, since you were last on Unbelievable. So um, just remind us about the Freedom From Religion Foundation, what you do and, and what that's all about. So why are you not any older, but I am? How did that happen? <laughs> oh, so? I'm older, I can assure you. I've even got the beard to prove it, though this yeah. is only about two weeks old, this beard. Well, this that point, proves yeah. something. <laughs> the Freedom From Religion Foundation is a national organization in the United States of free thinkers. That's kind of an umbrella, friendly umbrella term to cover atheists, agnostics, secular humanists, igtheists, uh, all sorts of labels. We don't care what people call themselves. We work to keep religion and government separate. Uh, and in that fight, we are often joined by religious people who agree with us. So we're not uh, exclusively an atheist organization, although most of our members would call themselves atheists. We also exist to educate the public about the views of non-theists. We have 10 full-time attorneys. We have a growing staff. We have a national newspaper, national radio show, national TV show. We publish books and, and so on. And uh, we are almost at 33,000 members wow. nationwide. That's, a, that's an impressive number. I'll make sure there are links from today's show to the organization and, of course, to the book, which we'll come to discuss in just a moment after we've introduced Braxton. Braxton, first time on the show, but we've been friends online for some time now. And I think you've been a long-time listener of Unbelievable yourself, haven't you? Of course, anyone interested in worldview discussions has to know about Justin Brierley and Unbelievable, of course. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm honored. Um, but, but Braxton, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself. How, how long have you been involved in your own particular way of bringing apologetics across online and also with, with all of the theology stuff you do as well? 
Yeah, so very briefly, um, I grew up the son of a megachurch pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, and so I very much was in that world. Um, we had revivals, we brought in evangelists, a lot of the things that I've heard Dan talk about that he used to do himself. And uh, at some point, I pastored two churches, and in my, you know, I was 20 years old when I first began pastoring, probably too young to be pastoring a church, but I don't think I hurt anybody. I think it was okay. And uh, then I got interested in traveling and speaking at churches, doing a apologetics work, and then began my own uh, academic work in that direction, became a professor at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, and now I'm in administration as the president of that school. And somewhere along the way, I thought um, that I should start a podcast, you know, to sort of advertise the school, but also to engage in worldview discussions like those that you have on Unbelievable and to kind of present responses to, um, uh, well, not just atheists, but, you know, skeptics online of various uh, persuasions. And that, of course, in due course, became a YouTube channel. And now the YouTube channel is growing, and we have about 8,000 subscribers, a few thousand more listening to the podcast. And um, since my debate with Matt Dillahunty about a year and a half ago, it has become more exclusively responses to atheists. And I like to think that one of the things that our channel is known for, I have a co-host, and he's kind of the bad cop, and I'm the good cop. But I like to think that, that what our channel is, is known for is being approachable, friendly, humble, um, kind-hearted and, um, and not, not just looking to win a fight, but to have a conversation and hopefully present the gospel in the midst of doing that. So, um, so that's kind of what we do. And so it's very closely related to the, to the work I do in academics here at Trinity College and Seminary. Brilliant. Well, it's great, great to have you on the show for the first time. Long overdue, I might add. Um, because Excited I've been, to be here, yeah. I've been watching your, your videos for some time as well. Um, Dan, let's talk about this, this book. Now, it's, it came out, I think, actually in 2018, Free Will Explained. Um, I, I heard you say, though, that um, you actually, it actually all started after you developed a friendship with a chipmunk. Do you want to tell us the backstory to, to this book? Yes, I was writing a previous book called God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction, which Richard Dawkins asked me to write to substantiate his famous quote, which I won't repeat here. And I got up early in the mornings to do that, and I saw a little chipmunk outside the, the French door window. I put out a, an almond, and after a while, the chipmunk and I became friends. And through the summer, uh, he got braver and bolder, and he uh, started coming up, jumping on my hand. Pretty soon, he was jumping up on my lap in one hop. He let me pet it. None of the others did that. They were all too scared, you know, the wild rodents. And after a while, we had what I would call, I don't know if, what he would call it, I would call a friendship. I mean, we kind of knew each other. I would walk in the backyard. He'd come running up to me for more nuts. And I noticed that this little evolved rodent with natural instincts seemed to be making decisions. He would come, but then he was like, he was going to run away instinctively to run away from a big mammal like me. But then he knew that he had the nuts over there. So he was like, well, do I want, he would come and go and come and go. And it looked like that little creature was making a decision, a choice. It looked like it was hesitating between options that it could have had. And then it was choosing one option or another. It looked like that little rodent had free will. Now, I, I know it didn't, and I know it doesn't. It's just a little evolved creature that didn't choose to be born. It's just a result of many, many generations of evolution. And yet there was this appearance, this thing like, well, whoa, this, it does look like this creature is doing something kind of similar, maybe to a lesser degree, to what we larger mammals are doing when we go through our lives with our evolved instincts and 
our parentage and all the stuff, you know, just like the rodent. I didn't choose how the neurons fire in my brain or what chemical interactions happen. I didn't pick my talents or proclivities or mental health, any of that stuff. It was just handed to me. And yet I feel like I'm making free decisions. Am I or am I not? If I can have a question about the chipmunk, then what's the question about me? I did not have any answers. And I, I thought, well, what's a better way to research a subject than to write a book about it? Right. There you go. And, and that is the book that, that came out, um, Free Will Explained. I mean, it, it's, it's a fairly bold title. You know, people have been trying to explain free will for a long time. Uh, and you, you say you have explained it and you come to an interesting conclusion, which is that, no, it doesn't exist, but we should embrace the illusion that we do have free choice. Now, first of all, I, I want to just hear a little bit from you on, on why you believe that science and philosophy do tell us that there's no such thing as free will because a lot of people might sort of say well how, how do you know that dan to start with we'll have to get the short short version of this but but, but give us your 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 praise of of that so that was not my first title my original title was make up your mind but the publisher wanted a title that explained the book and so i gave a compliment to daniel dennett and i told him so uh and uh the, he wrote a book called consciousness explained which i think is pretty bold and some people think he'd failed. And so I thought, well, okay, let me, let me at least borrow that. But uh, on the one hand, scientists who don't agree, by the way, scientists don't agree about free will. There are some scientists who think we do have a free will, even a libertarian, a natural libertarian, not supernatural. Uh, philosophers don't agree. Uh, you get two philosophers in the room, they're not going to agree on much of anything. Theologians don't agree. Nobody agrees about free will. Martin Luther and Aquinas disagree. And so here we have scientists telling us that our brains are the result of previous materialistic cause and effect. Everything that happens to us happened because of the laws of nature leading up to this moment when we make our choice. And there are some experiments and some surveys that seem to indicate that indeed many of our decisions are made before we are even consciously aware of them. There's debate about those. But in any event, most scientists <clears throat> tend to lead towards strict determinism meaning that we could not have done otherwise from what we did. We are the products of nature. We can't rise above cause and effect to violate natural law. We can't do that. Uh, some I, philosophers, though, most philosophers lean toward what you would call compatibilism. Some philosophers uh, think we should indeed embrace the word free will. Now, you mentioned Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett. They agree that free will is an illusion, but they differ in that Sam Harris thinks it's a pernicious illusion. We should get rid of it. We should not even use the word free will. Philosophers like Dan Dennett say, well, yeah, it's an illusion. We don't have it. Science, science shows that we don't have what we would call libertarian free will, but it's a beautiful, useful illusion. And that's where I fall on that debate. Yes. And I know Sam and uh, Dan Dennett have you know had quite a you know strong debate on that in previous years i think they've come to something of a, a friendly agreement to disagree uh but um certainly someone who will obviously disagree with with many of your conclusions is is braxton now braxton we've already heard determinism mentioned the idea that everything you know you, you could not have done other than you did um we've heard the the word compatibilist free will uh, which is the sort of daniel dennis somewhere in between where Yes, it's all determined, but you can still have something that approximates to free will, nevertheless, at a higher level. Um, you, you, you subscribe to something called libertarian free will. So let's just get these terms sort of defined from the outset. What's, what's your view of, of, of free will then, Braxton? 
Yeah. So if you have determinism on the one hand that um, I think that Dan just uh, gave a great ex explanation of it, the past history of the universe, it's all like a chain of dominoes, or if you like trillions of chains of dominoes, but dominoes nonetheless, um, the past history of the universe, your past life experience, the formation of your neural structure and the firings of neurons in your brain results in what we, what we call your choices. And indeed they are your choices, but they could not have been otherwise. That's the principal feature there that I think is important to get. And that that extends to your beliefs and even your thoughts, whatever you're thinking right now. Now, um, opposed to that would be libertarian freedom. As you said, that's what I hold to. And at base, what libertarian freedom says is uh, that nothing external to the agent determined what the agent would do. And many people cash that out. And I think Dan expresses this in his book. I don't think he uses this technical language, but they cash that out as what they call the principle of alternative possibilities, the PAP. That is to say, the idea that whatever you ended up doing, you really could have done otherwise. Um, and, uh, you know, could have done otherwise language can get tricky in this realm. But I think in terms of what Dan calls scientific determinism, that is to say what's going on under the hood, however we want to talk about your choices, um, that, that that's what's happening. And, and it couldn't have been otherwise in that sense um, without, as, as he says, violating some sort of a mm. law of nature. Now, we wouldn't say that you violate laws of nature, but the point is that the libertarian would say nothing external to the agent determines what the agent agent does or thinks or believes, though we would accept that we do have influences. And so that's an important feature, oh. I think, of this, is to recognize that we do think that we have influences and that those do serve as reasons for our doing, just not causally in that sense. Sure. But, but ultimately, you did have a genuine choice about whether you went for the granola or the Weetabix uh, for breakfast. Uh, do you guys have Weetabix so. in America? I, I don't know. I've never heard of that. That must okay. be a British thing. <laughs> bad, bad, bad choice of, of breakfast. You I had, had no some, choice of Weetabix because you don't have I had it. some in but, Manchester last year. Oh, well, there you go. You, there you you've go. been inducted. Um, yes. Anyway, you, you, but you do have genuine choices that within those boundaries, obviously, you don't have the choice to go and fly somewhere um, and sprout wings or anything like that. But that's true. But I would say, and this is a very nuanced point that's probably not important for this discussion, but I do have the freedom to will to fly like a bird, even if I can't actually deliver on that on the basis of my nature. So I think that's an, an important feature to keep in mind. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, where do we want to go with this? Because we could go and, and just to have, have you respond briefly to Dan's point that as far as he sees it, science tells us that we live in this essentially cause and effect universe and, and that, you know, some of the neuroscience and so on suggests that we actually are primed to do things before we have the conscious will to do them in the first place. So what, what's your overall take on, on the science of this and whether or not it does point to a sort of some form of determinism ultimately in the universe? Well, in one sense, I have to be a little embarrassed and admit I'm not a scientist, so uh, take that with a grain of salt. But I am able to read the journal articles, and I am able to read the papers just like Dan is. And so I think we can say something about this. And while it's true, um, the paper that he referred to, I think, is a paper from David Chalmers and David Burgett from 2013. Um, and he's right. Uh, this is a this is a uh, survey of uh, professional philosophers and graduate students doing work in philosophy. And yes, 59.1% are compatibilists. Um, 
no free will, 12.2%, which by the way is less than libertarian freedom. There were 13.7% uh, libertarians in that group, which by the way is kind of a substantial number. I mean, it's not, it's not the majority, but it is a substantial number. Now, what is interesting, and I just have to, as a person that appreciates worldview discussions, what I have to point out, and again, this is philosophers and not scientists, but to go back on the data that he called out, 72.8% of those studied in this were atheists and 49.8% were naturalists. Now that doesn't poison the well against them. We're just talking about philosophers, but it does go to show that if you get a group of, um, of atheist philosophers, you're primarily going to get determinism. Now that's not, that's not, that doesn't tell us what's true or not. But when we come to the actual evidence, I know that Dan mentioned this kind of in passing in his book, but Alfred Mealy actually released a book a few years ago called Free, I think it's called Free, uh, How Science Hasn't Disproven Free Will. And in that book, he goes through all of the experiments from neuroscience and everything else that are touted out to try and show that libertarian freedom either is impossible or probably doesn't exist, beginning with the well-known Libet experiments that we could talk about if we wanted to, but many people interested in this discussion mm. are probably aware. And he shows what's wrong with those things and how they, they each have major problems. And principally put, and I'm trying to be brief here, Justin, but principally put, um, if the, even if we were to grant what the experiment is supposed to show, which there are too many problems to, to just grant that anyway, but if we were to grant it, what it would mean is that that particular experiment, Libet or whatever it is, has shown that in certain cases, we have unconscious choices that we make um, that we're not consciously aware of. And so there's, it seems that there's a lack of freedom there. But then there's the grandiose leap to say that that's true of all of our choices, um, which seems really like a, a leap in the dark. Now, Dan kind of, I think, shoulders a little bit of burden of proof in his book, because while I don't think he comes out and says that it's impossible, he does just kind of grant as a presupposition that um, scientific determinism, as he calls it, is true. But I wonder if Dan, um, what Dan thinks about uh, some of the people doing work on this, um, who are, who are uh, many of whom are committed to a kind of methodological naturalism, like John Eccles or Roger Penrose or Henry Stapp or Robert Kane, for example, or uh, Stuart Hamroff or David Hodgson. These are people who are in that great work, the Oxford Handbook of Free Will, and multiple places talk about the possibility of agent causation or indeterminacy. Lastly, I'll say that um, when it comes to science itself, it may be the case that scientists overwhelmingly deny libertarian freedom. I've, I've got the data here for philosophers. I wouldn't be surprised if that's right about scientists, and I'm willing to take Dan's word for it. But I will say this, that what science does kind of, physicists have kind of come to this um, a position now where whatever they think is actually going on and whether it's truly deterministic or indeterministic, the consensus is that something that seems probabilistic and indeterministic is going on at the micro level of quantum physics. And so the question is, is there a way that those indeterminacies felt at the quantum level can be in some way amplified up to the macro level? So the idea that science has taken libertarian freedom off the table is, I think, uh, vastly premature. Okay. You may want to respond to that. Dan, um, we may also want to move to the to the next part of what what the book is about, which is that if you grant the lack of free will or determinism, that that you don't necessarily think that's that's an issue anyway. But do you want to respond first of all to, to what Summer Braxton had to say there? Yeah. So I, I ultimately think none of this even matters. I think it's a fake debate, and I talk about this false dichotomy between determinism and free will. 
I communicated with Alfred Mele, and I love his book. In fact, you can see me. There's a video of me in my hammock reading Alfred Mele's book, Free Will. He makes some great points in there. Uh, and the chipmunk jumps up on my chest at that time while I'm reading Alfred's book. So that was kind of a nice juxtaposition. <laughs> and by the way, and, Dan, I don't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to say, if I don't get a chance to say it, I'll forget. That sort of Narnia-esque picture of you in your backyard with the chipmunk uh, <laughs> did endear you to me. That is a beautiful thing. And there's video of it online, like you say. Yeah, I know my right. wife took that one. So uh, Alfred Mele does believe and he does defend what what he would call a naturalistic libertarian free will, not a supernaturalistic free will. There are some scientists who think that built into nature itself, perhaps due to quantum mechanics or something else, which I think is meaningless. But anyway, some of them do think they could argue that we have free will without a supernatural God theistic kind of a world. So uh, Mele is not adding to the theistic position necessarily at all, but he is raising some good questions. And I think I agree with his uh, criticisms of the uh, Benjamin Libet experience. And I kind of think it doesn't matter because I don't think free will requires consciousness. I think that's just an overlay that we, we have to be conscious in order to make a free will decision. I think free will is a social construct, not a scientific construct. But you mean compatibilistic free will, right, Dan? No, I mean the illusion of free will. I think this free will that right. we have, it, and I don't even use the word compatibilist for myself. I use the word acompatibilist because to say that you're a compatibilist means you're agreeing that there's a tug of war between these two opposite points of view. When it's not this way, it's this way. It's a, it's, yeah. it's a flipping of perspective. And so it's, you, you can fight forever about this and you're never going to come to an agreement because you're looking at different logical levels, trying to pretend like you're, you're fighting like this. And so both sides make good points. And, and I agree with the hard determinists that libertarian free will is an illusion. But I also agree with the philosophers that the illusion of free will is an important part of what it means to be a human being. Well, just if I could just add real quick, Justin, um, I think it is important to note, though, and this is the confusion that can arise, and I'm not saying we shouldn't accept what you're offering just because there can be terminological confusion, but when you say the acompatibilistic view of free will, when you say you don't have to be conscious to have free will, um, you're talking about the form of free will that you that you present. And I, I know you know this. I just want the audience to understand that's not saying libertarian freedom would be compatible with that. And so I, I think that's an important feature. And lastly, I would say that this idea that Mele doesn't offer some supernatural explanation of libertarian freedom, of course, but we're just discussing free will in general. Um, I, I would say that Free will is an important feature, whether or not this discussion ever took us to a theological discussion. And I think that there, are, since there are naturalistic explanations or possibilities, they can serve as philosophical defeaters to the claim that libertarian freedom has been disproven. Although, if it were the case that uh, we found out we had libertarian freedom, then I think that would certainly be consistent with uh, Christian theistic things. And so in that sense, kind of abductively, it would be a part of a cumulative case in that favor. Well, I think you're right. You're absolutely right. And that, I, I, I mean, what it means to me is that there's a lot of work to be done still. If, if, it, if, if say, let Braxton, to, to play devil's advocate, if you, were, if you would, for a moment, if we do live in a universe that, that is entirely a naturalistic universe, a cause and effect, that's all that, that there is, matter in motion effectively, is then um, the denial of free will uh, something you would say, yeah, you, you probably do have to go that way. Um, that 
You know, I used to think that way, Justin, um, and I have an argument for God's existence from libertarian freedom, and I think that the premises of it still hold, uh, but I would defend them differently now. See, okay. I've, I've come to the point now where I think probably, I probably agree with Dan in the sense that uh, he may not even think that if there is a God, you can have something like libertarian freedom, but, but I probably would agree that if naturalism is all we've got, then it's probably not the case that we have libertarian freedom. Nevertheless, what I, what I would like to press is um, these guys like uh, Robert Kane or, or ladies like Laura Ekstrom, people like this, they are throwing out possible explanations. They're not saying this is definitely the case, although okay. I think Robert Kane sounds like he is, but they are offering uh, alternative hypotheses with th that work on naturalism if they work. And to my mind, if they do work, there's an incredible teleology to them that would serve as an evidence for God. Okay. And I'd love to describe one of those if, if that's the way the conversation goes. Sure, sure. Well, we, we, we're pressing up to our first break in a moment. But before we get there, I want you, Dan, just to, to elaborate just, just a little bit on this idea of accepting the illusion. Let's, let's say grant you that, let's say that free will doesn't exist. But for you, that's not something to get hung up on. Um, because as far as you're concerned, we, we just embrace the illusion that we do have free will. We just kind of imagine that I could have chosen differently what I had for breakfast this morning? Yeah. Well, even the strictest determinists, even Sam Harris would say that it feels like we have free will to make free choices. It looks like it. Richard Dawkins throws up his hands. I asked Richard if he might want to write a foreword from my book, and he said, no way am I jumping in those waters because it's so, all these experts are fighting and all of that. And uh, I'm looking lost. very dramatic at your end. If, if, if you're watching on video, there's a light. Yeah, there's, a, there's a storm house, and... There's a little bit of a electrical fluctuation here, and uh, I doubt that the storm has free will. Well, but, well, but in anyway, any event, yeah. carry but, on. But we only have a few seconds here, so I think um, we live our lives with many what you might call emergent properties or qualities, things that don't exist in the scientific realm. Things like baseball and marriage. Marriage is not a scientific fact; it's a social fact. I think free will is not a scientific truth. I think free will is a social truth. It's something that we all assent to as social tribal human beings. Um, and there are many illusions that we even know are illusions in our lives. We admit it, and yet we embrace it. For example, the illusion of depth perception. And I have a whole chapter about that. Depth perception actually doesn't, doesn't really exist. You're seeing two different trees, but your brain melds it into one, and then you see this beautiful... Wow, it's amazing. If you don't have depth perception, you, know, you don't know how beautiful it is. We know it's an illusion. We know it's a trick of the brain. It's a very be useful, beautiful survival trick of the brain that we embrace this illusion, which helps us navigate through the world. I think free will as a social illusion is a very useful moral roadmap, if you will. It helps us navigate through our social tribal field. It's not a real thing. It doesn't exist in reality. You can't prove it scientifically, but it is one of those properties that emerges not in an individual necessarily, but in the group because we evolved as social animals. Thank you. Well, look, we're going to go to a quick break and we'll come back with Braxton's thoughts on this idea of embracing the illusion of free will, even if it doesn't really exist. Uh, we're talking about free will on today's show. My guests are Dan Barker and Braxton Hunter asking, does it matter if free will is just an illusion, as Dan Barker claimed? We'll be back in just a moment's time. What I want to invite Roger to comment on is why couldn't the mental realm include an infinite consciousness? 
it's too much like us. It's it's too <laughs> much like, like him, putting it <laughs> like yes, like the Greek views of the gods in some sense. They were like too much like but us. They were finite. Contingent <laughs> here, we're talking about a metaphysically necessary source. I admire this noble aspiration to find the highest possible ideal. It's almost as if you're proposing a new religion to meet this new challenge. It's not a new religion. What it is is something that sits in the same place. Mm. It addresses some of the same needs, but it is not founded on the same principle. If the New Testament says that Jesus did X, Y, and Z, did he do it or not? I don't think it's a story that's made by committee. Am I going to have a later literary genius who comes up with a great story like this, or am I going to say, no, Jesus is the genius, and somehow that story has basically been preserved? Welcome back to the show. This is Unbelievable, the program that brings you conversations that matter every week. We're available as a podcast. And if you go over to our webpage, you can even get the free ebook too by subscribing to our newsletter. Uh, loads of great conversations in that ebook with thinkers like Jordan Peterson, Richard Dawkins, Tim Keller, and many others. The link is in the description. Well, today on the show, we're talking about free will. Is it an illusion? Does it matter if it is? My guests are Dan Barker and Braxton Hunter. Dan is an atheist. He's the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And in his book, Free Will Explained, he argues that there is a beautiful illusion when it comes to free will. In fact, we live in a deterministic universe. Everything that happens was always going to happen the way it happened. We really didn't have a choice about it but it's good to act as though we did. Braxton Hunter is here. He's from Trinity Radio, and uh, there, I'll make sure there are links to both of my guests from today's show. But um, Braxton, um, you've thought about the, these issues as well. And, and for you, the, the view that, that Dan holds has, I know, a number of issues. Um, you, you think there are a number of problems with holding to a deterministic view. Where do you want to begin with that? And, and maybe, first mm. of all, comment on this idea of, of simply embracing the illusion of free will. Yeah, I, I think there are a few problems with that. One of the things that Dan is great about is he is a master illustrator. And as someone who used to be a preacher and a pastor a lot, um, I understand the value of a good illustration. And so for someone who wants to understand compatibilism, it's a great book for that. Um, although I think it also betrays some of the problems with compatibilism. And, and that is, these are great illustrations. And um, I want to I want to just point to a couple of them. So as we just heard, uh, Dan thinks of free will, our language about free will, our embrace of free will, the responsibility, all those things, as something of a social convention, much like marriage would be. And we may talk about it like we talk about a sunrise or a sunset. Uh, it's colloquial, but it, you know, we, we know what we mean. Or a game he uses in the book like chess. Chess is something that we subjectively came up with, but then there's an objectively better or worse way to win the game of chess. Um, there's two things about this. First of all, I think that free will is different than these in the sense that if you had a man on a desert island somewhere, he would develop the intuition. He would sense the intuition that he had free will, that he could have done other than whatever he did. But he wouldn't have any intuitions about a game of chess. He wouldn't have any intuitions about something called marriage, even if there was a partner there for him to have a relationship with. Um, and I think what we, we see an intuition with free will that is so strong, in fact, 
that we actually do hold people responsible as if they could have done otherwise. Now, this is no surprise to Dan. He knows this. Um, but we don't do that with chess. If you make a bad chess move, we don't put you in prison or something over that. The second thing I'd like to say about this is that, and it's related, is that when the stakes get up higher, we tend to peel away the social convention and look at what's actually going on under the hood. So with the sunrise, for example, um, sure, we understand what we mean when we say, when we talk about a sunrise. Uh, but if you work for NASA and you're head over a program of sending someone to the space station, you darn well better peel away the colloquial convention and start talking about the reality of planetary orbits and all those kind of things. And so I think when we're talking about free will, it can actually be... Um, a cruel thing uh, if we say, look, we, we know that this is all determined and that the, 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 the racial hater who commits the violent act um, really couldn't have done otherwise. It's really not his fault. But you know what? Um, we, we're going to pretend that it is and hold him responsible. And this will be the most difficult thing I've said so far. And I, I can tell that, Dan, you and I are developing such a wonderful relationship here. And uh, I, I don't want to throw a punch too soon. <laughs> but I do want to say that if you're the kind of person out there who's listening who would say something like, that racial hater who commits a violent act could have done otherwise. He didn't have to do that according to the laws of nature, well, then you believe in libertarian freedom like I do. But if, you're, if you believe in determinism, you're going to have to say that was determined and it really wasn't on some level, it wasn't up to him. And I think that's an important way to find out kind of where you stand on this. But I think those conventions just, the, the language of convention is helpful, but it peels away when we, when we get the stakes up as high as they need to be for this discussion. Ben. So Sam Harris brings up that very issue right at the top of his book, and I talk about it as well. Suppose a person is convicted of a horrible crime. It's on videotape. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Horrible crime. But then during sentencing or before sentencing, you learn that that criminal who admittedly did this act had a brain tumor. Doesn't that change your impression or your sympathy toward this person? Was it totally their fault or was it as a result? In fact, there are crimes that have been committed because a person indeed had a brain tumor that, that was contributing to that. <clears throat> so that doesn't make us more merciful to the person. We still need to protect ourselves from people like that who are violent, regardless of whether they were free or not. But our legal system, our whole philosophy of moral accountability has to assume that that person, that locus, that agent who committed that action could have done otherwise. We have to assume that. Otherwise, we'll just let him go free and say, you know, could the criminal say to the judge, hey, the universe made me do this, so it's not my fault? Of course it's their fault. They were the agent that did the action, free will or not. And our system of law and our system of moral accountability assumes for social reasons. We assume that we, all of us are free. If I'm sitting on a desert island, I'm going to think about that I have free will, not because it's some supernatural, transcendent, libertarian thing that comes to me. It's because I am an evolved social animal. We evolve, our brains evolved to be socially responsible and morally responsible to others, even when there's no one else around. And I bring the illustration of that, of that movie with Tom Hanks, where he developed a relationship with a soccer ball, right? There was nobody there, and yet he still had to have this illusion of, being a social human being. So yes, I think the illusion of free will is actually hardwired into us, not because it transcends the universe, but because it's part of how we survived as a social tribal group. 
Well, you, you know, Dan, Braxton, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you'll notice that I, I didn't speak of any transcendence or supernatural intervention, although I realize that most theists do go about it that way. Um, but but I, I want to say one of the great travesties of your book, in fact, one of the unforgivable sins, is that when you talked about Castaway, you said that Wilson was a soccer ball, when in truth, Wilson was a volleyball. Oh, so volleyball. I just want to make, okay. make sure you get the ontology of Wilson right. Uh, but But well, seriously... Uh, I, I was going to say that that wasn't your fault. You you were bound to do it. And, <laughs> and we we, we could do do that throughout the whole show. I, but it it is a it is a strange thing to me because at, at one level it is abs- most people would agree down to the ground with Braxton there, Dan. That if someone racially abuses another person, that person has done something wrong, something they shouldn't have done, and it wouldn't enter their head that they simply couldn't have done otherwise. Um, I mean, our whole now is that just something that we that, that we just kind of assume but the reality is that we never i mean it it does raise significant ethical questions doesn't it as to whether we we're treating people properly if we in any way um deal out retributive justice in a sense and so Um, jerry yeah jerry coin the scientist who is a strict determinist he disagrees with me about the illusion of free will he agrees with sam harris that this whole idea this whole illusion of free will contributes to retributive justice, contributes toward the promotion of the death penalty, for example. We need to punish those people because they were, they could have done otherwise, they should have known better. Bad little boy, you should, you should do better next time. And so that if we could get rid of the idea of free will, he says, then we could just treat each other more rationally. We would have a, a, a more, and I agree with treating people more rationally. I agree that, that we should have a system of justice that judges the individual as morally culpable, immediately culpable, if not cosmically culpable, because it was out of, out of that person's control in the big picture, but in the immediate picture, they were culpable. And doing so, our goal as a moral society is not to punish that person. It's not to make them feel like a bad little boy. It's, our goal is to protect ourselves from individuals who would commit such a crime. Try to make sure as much as possible that that doesn't happen again. I think that's the whole goal of morality is to try to minimize the kind of harm caused for whatever reason, including people whose brains are somehow wired wrong. Yeah, Braxton. So, so Dan, uh, this, is, this gets to the point of one of the things that I think, first of all, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with no death penalty. I'm fine with all those changes that you want to make. Um, the, there's a number of things that, that I think are important here, but one is the stakes of this. When I hear you say things like, um, it doesn't really matter in the end, this is precisely why it matters. Because even if that is the agent that took the action, as you said a moment ago, you say, well, of course we're going to hold them responsible. They're the agent that took the action. I hear you saying, and, and I know you're not saying this, I know you don't believe this, but that's what I hear, so, some hinting at, well, of course we're going to treat them as though they have libertarian freedom. And it's almost like trading on both sides of this thing, even though I know you see them as different perspectives on this. For instance, let's think about this. I think, I agree with you. I think, I, I think you would agree with me that when we talk to the hard determinist and the hard determinist wants to teach everyone that they have no free will and stop using the language of free will. I think that on the basis of um, some of the, like the Vol schooler uh, experiments where we find out if we teach people that they have, uh, that they're determined, they're more likely to cheat on exams and things like that. I, I, think, I think on the basis of those things, that would be a travesty to teach people that they don't have any kind of free will. Likewise, though, if you believe that the truth is determinism, but you teach people that they are in some sense 
there's a, there's a sense of free will in which they are morally praiseworthy and blameworthy. That can be cruel um, to the individual who, say, uh, cheated on her husband, and, and now she's uh, on anxiety pills and depression when she could benefit from the gospel of determinism and find out that, oh, I really couldn't have helped this. So I don't see either one of those as working out. The libertarian, on the other hand, can say, you know what, you are responsible for having cheated on your spouse. But the good news is you, you can also freely choose what comes next. It's not determined, and you can choose to do otherwise. So while I agree with you, I guess, that this whole business about free will being somewhat necessary for a pragmatic society and all of that sort of thing. I think that's just trading on the language of free will that's most at home among libertarians. It, it does feel a little bit like you want to have your cake and eat it in the sense that you, you acknowledge that we're basically believing a lie in order to kind of get along better socially, that, that there's a kind of social utility to this. It's the usefulness of it. Um, but uh, many atheists I meet are all about, no, tell me the truth. I don't want to have the sugar-coated, you know, fairy tale, please. Um, that's what the religious believe in. It almost sounds like you're saying, no, actually, sometimes we do need the sugar-coated sort of fairy tale version of, of reality to, just to get by that. So an illusion is an untruth, but an illusion is not a lie. We know that when we look around the world with depth perception, we, we know it's not actually real. We know it's an illusion that our brain creates. And yet we embrace that. And we don't call that a lie. We're not saying we're lying to ourselves. So I know that's kind of a poor analogy. But if you can think about free will as an illusion of the brain, when we're judging other people's actions, that they are free and that we are free, we're not lying to ourselves. We're admitting that everything is strictly deterministic. We are admitting that. We're agreeing with that. But that as a socially evolved species, we do act as if marriage actually meant something. Uh, for example, scientists will tell you there's no such thing as race. Race is a meaningless concept. But society will tell you race is extremely important. Racism is extremely important. So you can't tell someone who's suffering from racism that race is no, there's no scientific race. We do know what racism means in a social structure. We don't know what it means in a scientific structure. There are many things that emerge in a group that don't exist in science. So I, to say that the illusions that we have are useful and beautiful is not to say we're lying to ourselves. I can admit that my depth perception is actually wrong. It's something my brain is creating out of two different eyes coming to two different parts of the brain. I can also admit that I don't have free will. And yet that illusion that I have that we do have free will is very precious. I think it's one of the main reasons that give meaning to our human existence. Okay, right there. I'm sorry, Justin, but, but that is a very important feature. I agree with you 100%. And as I was reading that, I thought, okay, well, I don't, I don't think you'll like this term any more than lie. But, I th but you just bear with me here. Perhaps a convention like this is a pretense. We're pretending as though uh, it's as if, I mean, that sounds like we're saying, we're pretending that this is true. And to say that it's one of the most meaningful parts of being human, but we're just pretending because it makes us feel good or makes society function better, sounds more like what atheists typically say to Christian folk. It's not pretending out of, you know, out of nothing. It's a part of who we are as evolved creatures. We are social animals that have parts of our brains that are wired because we are social animals. And as a group, we have these things uh, 
uh, what's his name? Uh, Sean Carroll talks about ba- the game of baseball, for example. I wish we could have more live baseball, but uh, you won't find baseball in the laws of physics. It's not there. And you could maybe theoretically analyze a baseball game down to the subatomic particles to see what's going on. But that's not what we mean by baseball. Baseball is this convention or a game of chess is this social agreement that we have or a dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill or a, or, or a, a pound over there in, in, uh, in Woking. Is that where you are? That's, yeah. So the, these are social conventions that we don't pretend that we are lying to ourselves when we say that this $1 bill is worth less than a hundred dollar bill. It's just paper with ink on it. But we do know that we socially have come to some agreements that this is what this means. It's not a lie. And it, it maybe it's a pretense, but what's wrong with pretending it because it does work. There's no harm in us agreeing about uh, is, the value is, of things. Is, is there not something that's a great pity about the idea that if you go to the baseball game, it was absolutely predetermined that the Yankees would win over the Red Sox. I'm, I'm afraid I don't know my baseball team, so I might be <laughs> misquoting here. But, um, you know, there, there seems to be something that makes it, for me at least, sort of just all pointless in the end. If it was all going to turn out the way it turns out, there was never a chance that the, the Red Sox would win or, or, you know, or whatever. Does, does it, I can understand why some people would feel like that's a kind of a depressing, almost nihilistic kind of way of, of seeing life. If, but if you don't a, know it until it happens. The well, fact that it's not predictable, the fact that you don't know. If you did know in advance, you wouldn't go to the ball game, right? In fact, that's a good question about God himself. I call it Fang, the free will argument for the non-existence of God. Because if God knows the future, if mm. God knows everything, he knows his future choices tomorrow at 12 noon, God has no choice to change it. And so God knows the outcome. He can't even be free himself. A a libertarian free will even falls into the same trap. So we enjoy the game because when you, when you throw some dice, some die on the table in a game of craps, while those are in the air, it's already predetermined how they're going to land. Right. But you don't know that yet. You know, you're taking a chance. You know, there's a risk. You don't control what's happening with those die as they flip through the air. And when they land on the table, you're not, you're waiting to see what is what would happen deterministically after you threw those dice? And I think the same thing happens in our daily lives. We just don't know the future. Mm-hmm. If we did know it, then um, we would have I, no be, freedom. It, I would love to move us on to the other issue that I, I hinted at, at the beginning of the show, the, the issue of reason as well. But brief response, if you would, Braxton, on, on that interesting point from Dan on, does, you know, does libertarian free will sort of count against God? Because if... God, you know, is omniscient. That means that he, in a sense, has no control because he knows what's going to happen. He can't change it, therefore. Yeah, me and Dan are on the opposite sides of this. I've got an argument for God's existence for free will. He's got an argument that God does not exist on the basis of free will. So, uh, yeah. So, all right. You'll remember at the top of the show, I said that at base, what libertarian freedom means is that nothing external to the agent determined what the agent would do. And that that typically cashes out in the principle of alternative possibilities that one can do other than could have done other than whatever one ends up doing. Um, But uh, there have been developments here where... uh, First of all, I believe that God has the principle of alternative possibilities. So I'll tackle that one first because there's two sides to this. Um, I've heard Dan talk about this. So I think he understands that it would be a category error to talk about humans and say um, that God knows what we will freely do necessarily means that we're not free because knowledge isn't causal. That would be a a category error. God's knowing what I will do just means that God knows what I will freely do. And if I'd done otherwise, God would have known otherwise. 
Um, but that, but that idea that knowledge isn't causal that works for God too. God knows what God will freely do. And the, the whole concept here is God's being omniscient means that of course, he's not going to change his mind. Changing your mind implies a process where you think through concepts that you have or learn something new or apply those in different ways such that now you changed your mind and you didn't know that you would. That's got nothing to do with freedom. God's knowing what he will freely choose is just a part of what it means to be timeless on omniscient. But he still freely chose to do the thing that he would freely do. The other side to that is, even if I granted you that God does not have the principle of alternative possibilities, I actually used to think that was the case. I thought we had free will, but God didn't. But, um, but even if I grant, which by the way, wouldn't mean that Christianity is false. It would just mean we learned something about theology. But, but um, nothing external to God determines God's actions. There are these examples called Frankfurt type examples. And these examples, I won't go into them, but they are meant to show that even if an individual could only do one thing in a particular circumstance, it doesn't mean that they weren't free in the libertarian sense. And if you wanted, we could talk about that. But the point is, that even if it were the case that God did not have the principle of alternative possibilities, there simply can't be anything external to God that determines God's actions. Thus, God has to be libertarianly free. And so that's how we would answer that. He's not, even if you don't think he's free in the pap sense, the principle of alternative, he's still free in the source sense. If, if you're willing to let that one go, Dan, um, I would love to move us on to the issue of reason. Sure. Um, now, let me let me put this to you, Dan, and, and just see what your response is. And, and then maybe Braxton can comment. Um, here, here's a thought experiment. OK, if if all our thoughts and beliefs, in fact, you're the very book you've written and on all your thoughts about free will, if they are all the end result of a deterministic process. Well, in what sense can it be said that we are rational in holding those beliefs? So, for instance, if Braxton ultimately had no choice but to be a Christian because of his past history and all the causal effects that came to the point where Braxton calls himself a Christian, and if you're an atheist and all of your history simply inevitably makes you an atheist, um, something you didn't really have any choice over because we've got no free will here, it's all a deterministic process. Well, doesn't that make a mockery of the idea, as I often hear from, from, well, both Christians and atheists, that we want to believe things because we've got good reasons to. But if we simply believe what we believe because our deterministic universe handed those beliefs down to us in a sort of inexorable way, it seems like reason goes out the window, rationality goes out the window. Um, so, so how do you weave, how, how do we call ourselves rational, evidentially based people if actually everything we think and believe came to us by a completely non-rational process, i.e. this, the frankly, just atoms swerving in the void in the universe, that that is the way in which we got our beliefs, not through some reasoning, freely chosen, believing in something because it seems like the best way in which the evidence points and so on. So just be interested in your, in your overall response to, to that problem that I, I personally think that free that, that determinism presents to, to, to reason. So reason and logic are processes, they're systems. And even if they are predetermined and totally <clears throat> deterministic, that doesn't mean they don't function. Two plus two, if you formulate the question properly, is always going to be four regardless of your brain. And what our brains do is they look at that and they, we make the process, we follow the system, whatever system of logic you want to follow. 
but the, but, but the simple one of, of observation and evidence and, and using reason and avoiding non sequiturs and so on, following, uh, following basic logical principles. Those things happen or they don't. When they do happen, we say that was rational. When they don't, we say that was irrational. So uh, we- Did we have a choice? <laughs> is my next well, uh, in the cosmic picture, if you're talking about billions of years from now, looking back, no, we had no choice. But in the immediate picture of being social animals, working through our immediate lives right now, you know, not going back to the Big Bang or going to whatever, uh, it, it does make a lot of sense because uh, it, it's practically, it, it makes more practical sense to act in a rational manner than not. So those of us who do act in a rational manner, whether it's free or not, whether it was determined or not, we are going to have a more practical, we would hope more beneficial life on, on average, on balance. So I don't know why the, the illusion of free will would provide a, a, a challenge to rationality. Uh, you know, rationality is a skill like, any, like playing chess or like anything else you do. You train your brain to do this thing. And if you don't train your brain to do that, you're going to be less rational. You <clears throat> might be more likely to believe there actually are angels and demons and things in the real world without evidence. Braxton, what's your thinking on, on this challenge to determinism? First of all, I'm glad that since I threw a punch a while ago, Dan felt like he could throw a punch there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but so here's, here's the problem is that if determinism is true even, and, and free will is an illusion, then that undercuts our ability to justify knowledge claims in the following way. Everything that you believe, like the idea that you're a, an atheist activist who works for the Freedom From Religion Foundation, um, or that determinism is true, or that God does not exist, or whatever it is that you believe, you, were, you only believe that because you were determined to believe it. And um, the person who believes he's a pink unicorn d believes that because that's what he was determined to believe. And if you try to justify it through some process, you're using the very... Uh, process that we're saying has been undercut because it's all been determined. Whereas with libertarian freedom, you can analyze the reasons for accepting certain propositions and choose which thing you're going to accept and believe and choose among the rational and irrational uh, processes. There are journal articles by this, John Searle's written on this, Angus Manuge, Evan Fails. There, there are, this is all over the journal articles. And I, I did think it was a bit odd that it didn't come in your, up in your book because in your book, I almost got the impression that, you, and maybe you outright said, that morality is the principal reason people care about the free will discussion. When I think that this is as important because without it, we couldn't have knowledge claims. And so let me give an analogy that I think will help encapsulate this. And this is, comes to me from uh, Dr. Tim Stratton, who's one of our professors here at Trinity. He's got his PhD and wrote a book on this. It's coming out. And he says, think about it this way. Let's imagine, Dan, that right now, you and I are observing some third party and this person, we happen to know, they don't know. Uh, let's say it's Justin. Justin is being controlled by a mad scientist somewhere. And this mad scientist is manipulating and determining everything that Justin is thinking, what he's thinking right now, the next words that are going to come out of his mouth, and all of his beliefs. Now, um, if we knew that about Justin, he doesn't know about, it, know about it himself. Would we say that Justin is justified in trusting the, the conclusions that he comes to, or will we say that he could never be justified in that because we don't know the motivations of this mad scientist? And just to, before you answer, 
Um, that's the way it is with determinism, except there's not even a mad scientist. It's just the blind forces of nature. And so I don't know how we could ever justify our knowledge claims. Now, you're a brilliant guy and you headed this off a little bit ago by saying, yeah, but we can still get to right answers. And of course, calculators are deterministic and they can get us to right answers. Um, but, but that's a different, you can get to right answers if you're determined, but you would never be justified in claiming that you got to a right answer. So there's a ball of argumentation that maybe you can make sense out of. <laughs> well, well, let's make sense of that after a short break. We're just butting up against our final break here and we'll, we'll, we'll give Dan a moment of thinking time. Um, we are talking about free will on the show today. Fascinating kind of paradoxical questions that are emerging out of the discussion today between Dan Barker and Braxton Hunter. Do you hope you can stick with us? We'll be back in just a moment's time. If you listen to Unbelievable with Justin Briley on Premier Christian Radio and enjoy the conversations between Christians and skeptics, then this is the perfect app for you. For the latest updates, podcasts, videos, articles, bonus content and much more, download the Premier Unbelievable app today. Welcome back to the final part of this week's edition of Unbelievable with me, Justin Briley. Great pleasure to have with me Dan Barker and Braxton Hunter. If you want to find out more about them, do go and check out the webpage of Unbelievable or in our YouTube channel um, information. Um, Freedom from Religion Foundation is what you're looking for if you want more on Dan. And his book is called Free Will Explained. That's what he's defending on the show today. Opposite Braxton Hunter from the Trinity Radio YouTube channel. We'll make sure there's a link to that or just search up Trinity Radio. Um, so in that last section, um, Braxton was putting the challenge to you there, Dan. Um, imagine I am being completely controlled by a mad scientist. Everything I say, think, all, all of my beliefs. Um, you, we, we wouldn't expect to have any justification for being confident in the things I say and do on that basis. And, and he asked, well, why, how is it any different on the fact that we're determined by a process completely outside of ourselves on a but sort of on a cosmic scale if you like that that brings us to this place um so so what what do you have to say to that and and then i'll just let you two guys go at it for a while so if you don't know that you're being controlled by a mad scientist you don't know that you think you're making your own decisions right same thing with determinism whether you know it or not you think you are and you you know and i i think that's irrelevant to the debate because you're looking at horizontally cause and effect through time this thing is causing me to make my brain made this decision right now boom right you're looking at it horizontally whereas as social animals we look at things vertically we're looking at it within the group within the structure <clears throat> which is which is why morality evolved in the first place because we need to observe and how other people treat each other looking at reason we don't have a lot of time here but looking at reason Braxton said there would be no way to justify your beliefs, but of course there would. Uh, let me ask you, if I put two apples on a table and then Justin, you put two apples on a table, how many apples are there? Four. No, there's not. No? I said, how many apples are there? Oh, all the apples in the world. <laughs> exactly. So you have to, you have to put a, you have to draw a box around what you're talking about. You okay. can only say two plus two is four. If you're looking at those particular two apples and those particular two. So if okay. I come to a conclusion that two plus two is four, I can actually mm -hmm. put two apples together and count them. I can justify my belief or my opinion based on observation. 
That's what science is. Science is observation. So I might have a belief that uh, Justin is a pink, pink unicorn or something, but I can go observe and see that that belief is mm -hmm. false. We do have methods, the scientific method, of actually confirming or disconfirming. And I would ask Braxton then, this idea that you have of a libertarian free will, I'm not discounting it out of hand. I mean, it would be amazing if something like that were true. I would, I would embrace that. That would be pretty neat to think that somehow we transcend in some way the laws of nature. That would be cool. That's what it looks like, but, and that's what it feels like. But um, how do you prove that? How be, beyond just making a, a doctrinal statement or a philosophical statement that there could be or is such a thing as libertarian free will, how do you know that you could have done otherwise after the fact, how, how would you ever go back and empirically observe that a person in fact did have the freedom to do otherwise? How is your <clears throat> hypothesis not only uh, verifiable, but how is it even falsifiable? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a couple of things there. The, the first thing that I want to say is on the issue of we can, the way we can find out is we can go and scientifically test these things. Um, but your first person perspective, the only thing that you have access to is your reason, right? And so you're going to use your reason to assess the scientific tests and you're going to believe whatever you were determined to believe because there are scientists who come to disparate conclusions about things. And that is at base metaphysically because this scientist was determined not to accept it and this scientist was determined to accept it. So again, what we see is this vicious circularity where you're having to rely on the very mechanism that is been undermined by the determinism. And I just don't see a way out of that at all. So that actually is one of the things I would bring to bear on the question that you just asked me second, which is how would you demonstrate the libertarian freedom is true? Well, one thing is, I think that you, I, I think that you know that you are able to make justified knowledge claims, right? But I would say if libertarian freedom does not exist, justified knowledge claims do not exist. But justified knowledge claims do exist, therefore libertarian freedom exists. That's one. I think you could do the same thing with morality, which has comprised much of our discussion because it comprises much of your book. But I'm going to give you what I think you want, Dan. I think this is what, what you came, came for, uh, what you showed up for. So, um, so there is... Richard Swinburne uses this with his argument from religious experience to God's existence. I'm repurposing, repurposing it here for this discussion about libertarian freedom. And it is the principle of credulity. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the principle of credulity as Swinburne uses it, but what he says is, he says, look, if I find in myself an intuition that is, in, that is so strong that it is almost impossible to doubt, which, by the way, is a quote you gave from um, I never can say this guy's name right. Gazinga, Gazinga, something like Gazanaga. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he says something exactly like that. Like it is an impulse that is almost impossible to doubt. And if I find in myself something like that, listen, not everything is as it seems, but a lot of things are, right? That's why Daniel Dennett uses intuition pumps to get your intuition up to these complicated heights. So here's how a good argument works, as you know. A good argument is one whose premises um, have plausibility. That is, they're more likely to be true than false. And so in order to convince someone that they don't have libertarian freedom, what one would need to do is to present an argument that has premises that are one or more premises that are stronger than our immediate in intuition about libertarian freedom. And I don't think there is an argument that exists like that, but it would be the, the falsifying thing. 
the things that we're presented with are things like the intelligibility problem and, and other things that seem to cause a problem for determinism. It's either determined or it's arbitrary. But um, I actually think we have, uh, we have arguments that are plausible, even from naturalism, that would serve as philosophical defeaters to those claims. And so until I'm presented with something that undermines that um, initial intuition, I happily remain a libertarian. So, so what you're sort of saying is it's, it's more implausible to doubt your intuition that you have libertarian free will than to accept the, the sort of the, con- than, than, than if you like the consequences of, of not having that, if, if you Especially like. the arguments that have been presented so far. The, and Dan didn't really make it a big part of his book to present these. So this is not directed at him. Sure. But, the, but, these, but the arguments that have been presented so far to show that libertarian freedom does not exist all fail. And they fail spectacularly, as Alfred Mele says in his book. Okay, but some responses, Dan, before we start to begin to wrap things up. So I debated Richard Swinburne a few years ago in, um, in Dublin. That was a fun debate, formal oh. debate. You know how they are. Mm. And uh, the argument from personal experience, the argument, you sometimes hear uh, people like William Lane Craig say one of his strongest arguments besides the resurrection is that he has a personal experience of God. Therefore, where does that come from? How do you explain it? I think that's one of the weakest arguments because people have all sorts of personal experiences, some of them culturally modified, depending on where you were born and raised. But um, there are some people that are absolutely convinced that they belong to a superior race. It's so real to them that there are inferior people. There are some people who are sexist, who are absolutely convinced the reality of their experience is that males are superior to females in almost every way. Uh, And so you would not say, therefore, that their strong internal feelings of, you know, uh, evolutionary evolved feelings, which which can be explained for better, for worse, for for tribal reasons, you would not say, therefore, that that necessarily points to the truth of these things. And back to your question about verifiable truth, what do we mean by the number four? Four is a number. Two plus three equals four. If that doesn't mean anything, if we can't count two apples and two apples and come up with a number four, if that doesn't mean anything that verifies that two plus two equals four, then we may as well not talk about anything. We have to come to some conventions about what words mean. So uh, how we, I guess my question still stands. How do you know that that person in the past could have made a different choice if you can't go back in past and actually observe that? So... Uh, I see there is some strength to your argument that we somehow find ourselves with these impulses, but I think you can explain those impulses and proclivities and maybe isms, whatever those isms are, in evolutionary terms that don't require anything that transcends or is libertarian above and beyond nature. Yeah, so really what we're doing a lot with the free will discussion, Dan, as you know, is we're arguing abductively. We're saying, look, Uh, here's what we observe, here's what we experience, what is the best explanation that we have for this phenomenon? My explanation obviously is pretty straightforward. It's you feel like you are morally responsible because you are morally responsible. You feel like you're free because you have libertarian freedom. You feel those things because they're real. Um, that's, That's the way I answer that. Um, but when it comes to the question you just asked, how, would we, how do we know that we could have done otherwise? Well, I would just point you to the work of some of these guys who are like Stuart Hameroff and Robert Kane and some of these that are looking at quantum indeterminacy because the rollback problem, which is the idea, could we roll it back 
This is what it's called in the literature. Could we roll it back? And if we play the tape again, will the person act differently? There's good reason to believe yes, if that indeterminacy that's felt at the quantum level could be amplified to the macro level. And so uh, I think that the, the evidence we're getting from quantum indeterminacy could be uh, a reason to think so. Um, so I think that that would be an answer. And that would also be something that would falsify the determinism, I think. So, um, but there was something else you said there. Oh, yes. William Lane Craig um, doesn't present that as an argument for the truth of his position. I just want to clarify this. I, I know you weren't trying to misrepresent him, but I just want to be clear. Craig presents that as one of the strong reasons he believes. And he, he suggests that once you come to believe, you'll also have that as a strong reason to believe. But, but that comes, he, as he often says, uh, apologetics is how we show that Christianity is true. It's by the inner witness of the Holy Spirit that we know that Christianity is true. So I just wanted to put that out there. Except he did tell me that once during a TV debate, that you know it when you, the experience, his personal experience of God was one of the reasons why he believes in the first place. Sure. Yeah. But, but he didn't present it as an argument for why you should believe, right? Well, no, but uh, what he's suggesting, therefore, there's something wrong with me. Because he has these wonderful experiences, but I don't. So there's something, it's almost an ad hominem argument if you bring that up. But, something's but, right with him and but, something's but it, wrong it, with me. But it kind of does bring us back to the point that was being made here by Braxton, which is, well, if Craig does believe because he's had some experience and you don't because you haven't had those experiences. I have had those I mean, experiences. Well, yes, indeed. Yeah. But now you believe that they were false experiences. It, 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 you know, the point being, aren't you simply all simply dancing to the tune of whatever cause and effects in the universe happen to hand you down? Are you being, are you a rational atheist? Is William Lane Craig a, a reasonable theist? It strikes me that neither can be true if we are all just determined to believe what we believe by these impersonal, non-rational forces, you know, matter in motion, ultimately, if that's what it all ultimately boils and, down And what's to. wrong with that? I mean, if that's reality, what's wrong with that? I mean, if that's the reality that we live <clears> in, then that's what we live in. And we are social animals that are constructing our truths based... I mean, not scientific truths, but our social truths. Well, it means there I mean. is no such thing as truth, I suppose. Is no, that a, of course no justifiable, not. Of no course justifiable not. claim. You, you justify it by observation and experiment. You can justify a, a hypothesis or a statement by actually looking at the real world. You can justify statements. But Dan, the, when you do that, you're just determined to conclude what you conclude on the basis of the experiments. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't predict or promise that there would be four apples on the table. I observe it after putting them there and you can look at it, you can see it, you can observe, you can count, you can actually scientifically verify something's true or false. Do we have a minute left to talk about quantum? Sure, we, I, we, can, I, we can do a bit on quantum. I think your whole idea about quantum indeterminacy or uncertainty and all that actually makes the problem worse because what quantum indeterminacy does, and I just talk about it briefly in my book, what it does is it, induce, it introduces randomness. Randomness is mm -hmm. the opposite of control. Mm -hmm. Randomness is the opposite of free will. It means that, yeah, I could have chosen a strawberry ice cream if that particular probabilistic <clears throat> neuron in a subatomic particle had fired in a randomly different way, then I would have picked uh, strawberry. But that's still determinism even if it's probabilistic, mm -hmm. even if it's uncertain, even if it's fuzzy, that's still determinism. So the answer to the, I don't know if you read, I don't know how much of the Oxford 
uh, handbook of free yeah, will. I read the whole it. book. What, it's it, massive, it, isn't it? How can you call a handbook the 600 pages? <laughs> right. in, you know? Yeah, I have it here. Yeah, actually. Well, then, then you're probably aware. And of course, I've, I've got several journal articles pulled up right now by various individuals working on this problem. And you're right. You're, you're referring to what I mentioned a moment ago, which is called the intelligibility problem in the literature, which is, look, it's either determined or it's arbitrary. But if it's determined, you don't have free will. If it's arbitrary, you don't have free will because you don't even know what you're going to do, right? So that, that's a, that's a problem. I, I, I admit that that's, in fact, that's been classically one of the big problems I've had to deal with in my own thinking about these things. Nevertheless, um, there are plausible answers to this that I think are pretty compelling. For instance, uh, Robert Kane's argument, what he says is, he says, all right, let's imagine that libertarian freedom isn't happening with every decision that you have. You mentioned in your book, Dan, that that would be absolutely tiring to constantly be having to uh, libertarianly decide about every little thing. And I think you're right. That would, that would be horrible. Um, but, you know, like when you walk up to a double door, you may not really libertarianly choose which door to go through. You just open the door, right? Um, and, and with the libid experiments even perhaps. But there are these moments where you're torn on what to do. And Robert Kane says, when those happen, perhaps there is this chaos that, ex that, that comes into your thinking. And this chaos about what to do, he gives an example of a, a woman who's on her way to a business meeting that's very important and, um, on the, and she, she has to make it. Um, and then on the way, she passes a mugging. And so she's torn with this self-interested motivation versus this um, benevolent motivation, moral motivation. And so in that moment, the, this serves as an amplification of the indeterminacy. Now, the indeterminacy is random. So don't think of the indeterminacy as the cause directly, but the indeterminacy is an ingredient in the choosing process such that whatever she ends up choosing, it will not have been determined because there was indeterminacy involved. And at the same time, she will be able to tell you the reasons why she chose whichever thing that she chose. Now, it's not to say there aren't still things that need to be worked on. You said that a while ago, and I think that's a relevant point. But in these moments where these, uh, he calls them SFA, self-forming actions take place, that then sets your life on a course where you're responsible for the things you do when you're running on less libertarian freedom later on. Uh, there's also agent causation, but there are a number of ways. It doesn't have to be quantum mechanics, but the journal articles are, there are quite a few journal articles dealing with our brains as quantum uh, computers. And I, I just think it's, all I'm saying is I think it's premature to take that off the table. I communicated with Robert Kane. He and I were on a panel to pick a free will reading list. And, uh, you know, it was, it was so fun and so collegial. And I don't think anyone on that panel agreed with each other. You, you know, all the philosophers and get, get three theologians in a room. I mean, <laughs> you don't have to be an expert to notice that the experts don't agree with each other. So, you know, I'm not saying I'm as God with this whole issue. There's, there's this whole playing field. And as you well know, there's all these differences in points of view. And uh, which I think maybe leans a little bit toward my idea that the whole thing is socially constructed. We're not talking about an actual scientific reality here. We're talking about something that we have raised up a level mm -hmm. to a higher logical level in our thinking, maybe like marriage or baseball or, or, or even morality. I think morality and, so, and justice is also one of those I don't, I don't think my chipmunk in the backyard is thinking about moral decisions. And, I, you know, and, and if you're right about free will, then my chipmunk has free will too because its brain <laughs> is functioning with neurons and it is making a free moral choice. I don't know. I, I can't see where that line is drawn. Let, let's have a, some final thoughts because our time is up, I'm afraid. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, Dan, do you want to sort of just wrap things up? You, you obviously feel like 
it's it's worth the illusion um we we just sort of you just have to suck it up and make the best of life even though ultimately none of us are really choosing what to think say feel or do um we 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 act as though we do and that's enough well i wouldn't say suck it up i would say enjoy it i mean okay. life is life's to be enjoyed life is beautiful life has all these dimensions to it some of which we add uh, to it if quantum but when you say can i just interrupt one thing yeah. when you say enjoy it i mean we can't choose we either do enjoy it or we don't enjoy it. it's not like we do have a choice if determinism is true is it so can you even yeah. say enjoy so, it as though well yeah so there's the paradox there's the paradox we use these words at a different level from subatomic particles right which by the way the quantum indeterminacy averages out i mean one is going to randomly go here and another trillion are going to randomly and when you're looking at the huge collection of particles in there i don't i don't know if one sub subatomic particles are going to make a difference to what anybody's decision is well, but uh, real quick just to say this take just a second i would just point you to roger penrose who's been here on the show and i know you're familiar with Roger Penrose work on consciousness and microtubules and things like that. I think there's a lot more to be said in that discussion than what we can accomplish at the tail end of a, of a podcast episode, sure, sure. right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're but right, I'll, let you think, I'll let you finish your thought, Dan, and then we'll, we'll hear from Braxton. Well, I guess, um, I guess my basic point is to agree with the scientific determinist that free will is not a scientific truth. So I'm a determinist. I, you could even call me a hard determinist for that matter. I'm not a compatibilist because that would mean that there's some kind of a tension between determinism and free will. I don't think there is because free will is not one of these things. <laughs> free will is not a part of the laws of nature. Free will is a, an emergent property. I talk about how wetness or hardness or other types of things emerge when you get to a larger quantity of things that don't exist in the individual particles. So free will is not a, so, not a scientific truth, it is a social truth. And ultimately, none of this matters. In the big picture, in the cosmic picture, a billion years from now, we're all gonna be gone. This podcast won't even be in anyone's memory. I mean, it's just gonna be a physics. It's just like there were, what, 100 billion human beings before us who are gone. They're dead and here we survive, you know, you know due to evolution. So, but, to say that something is not cosmically meaningful does not mean that it is not immediately meaningful. Our moral judgments, the way we treat each other, the things we assume about each other, the way we assign blame or praise or credit, to us within this you know, little temporal bubble we live in as we are moving through time, uh, it is meaningful to us because we need to protect ourselves from those who would cause harm. We need to somehow assign blame I tell the story about how humans even hanged an elephant once for committing murder in the United States. They actually assigned moral blame to an elephant and they hanged it and they felt good about it, you know, which is, and I think we're kind of doing the same thing with these animals here. We're doing the same kind of assigning to these mammals that moral responsibility and accountability and it works. And it's a good thing it works because if we move away from violence, away from you know, malice and harm and try to protect ourselves from those who are, for whatever reason, determined or not, a threat to our existence, then we will have a better world. Final thoughts from you as well, Braxton. Well, first of all, I'm from East Tennessee originally. And um, 
I have to say I've been to that town where the <laughs> elephant was hanged. Uh, that, that's my people over there. Irwin? Um, but uh, yeah, Irwin, Tennessee. Irwin, yeah. Tennessee, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, listen, Dan, I want you to know that it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And I'm going to say some closing things here, but, um, but, but I, I have to say that this book endeared me to you in a way that, that um, I didn't expect. Um, your illustration, your clear thinking on, on um, what compatibilism would mean. We disagree, you and I would, would certainly disagree about whether you have a foundation for hanging on to uh, the language of free will and the exercise of a justice system and morality based or related to free will. We would disagree about that. But, but I'm, glad that, I'm glad that we're still going to hang on to those things. Um, and, but, but I would just say again, and, and I, I, do, I have really enjoyed it, but I just have to throw this punch again. Um, it sounds to me, and I think you kind of admitted, that what we're saying here is at one level, it's not real, but we're going to pretend that it's real because it makes us feel good and is pragmatically good for society. And uh, to my mind, that's what I'm used to hearing from atheists saying that to me. I think we should... Um, embrace the truth. Now, I know that you are embracing what you think is the truth about actual scientific determinism, right? And when you say, we all know that scientific determinism is actually what's going on. Well, you know that, and Sam Harris knows that if it's true, but many, many people don't know that. And they're going to be led to live this compatibilistic free will without being exposed to that. And I think exposing them to that would be a terrible, terrible thing. I think there is no good side to this except the libertarian side. I think it matches our experience. I think it makes sense of morality. It allows for rational um, decision-making that results in justifiable knowledge claims. And I don't think we have to pretend. I think it's a full-bodied um, understanding of free will that makes sense of everything in a satisfying way that seems to match the nature of the world around us. And lastly, I believe that it sits very well. I know we haven't talked much about matters of Christianity and, and, and God's existence. We've touched on that a little bit, but I think it sits very well with um, Christianity. And so in that sense, I think it serves as part of an abductive argument for the truth of the Christian message. And on the basis of what we've discussed today and uh, the research and study that I've done over the past several years on this, I remain enthusiastically a libertarian. And a Christian. Um, Dan, you have served us so well as well uh, in bringing your case from the book. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Thank you very much. I'll make sure there's a link to it from today's show. Um, but thank you both for being on the program today. And um, wh whether it was meant to be or not, uh, I'm glad we were able to, uh, to be here together. So thanks for Can both. Can you link to the video of the chipmunk jumping up on my chest? I'll, I'll, I'll give you that sure link. It's there. Absolutely. Okay. I want to see that video too. I want to yeah. meet this this little one. Um, yes, good, good stuff. Thanks both uh, Dan and Braxton for being on the show today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. For more conversations between Christians and skeptics, subscribe to the Unbelievable podcast. And for more updates and bonus content, sign up to the Unbelievable newsletter.